Let's open our Bibles to that third chapter of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. I am sorry that some of you had to hear a minister babble last night about the cross of Jesus Christ being a scandal. The Lord Jesus Christ died a covenant death for His people, and it was a totally successful mission by the Son of God to save every one that the Father had given Him, and not a single one will be lost, but they will all inherit eternal life, and He'll raise up their bodies again at the last day. He's not offering a covenant with anyone. He's not offering heaven to anyone. He's promised heaven. He's guaranteed heaven. It's in His will, and we are His children, and that will goes into force by the death of the testator, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in covenant salvation like Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists haven't fully grasped. And that is covenant salvation where God's made a covenant and all the elect will receive it and it will not be lost. And we don't get our children into it by infant baptism or any other means. We don't use circumcision or any New Testament ordinance that's compared to circumcision. The Lord Jesus Christ has done it all for us. And we lay hold of it by faith. And I hope that before we walk out of here this morning, in this first assembly, that we will all lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. We'll lay hold of heaven by faith. It's been promised to us. We believe it by faith. The only way you have faith is by God's gift of grace to even lay hold of the promises that He's made. We are His covenant people. He's done the work for us from beginning to end. And we're thankful for that. You've had read in your ears this morning Genesis 12, 15, and Hebrews 11. Those passages describe Abraham leaving the land of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. God called him, and he went. God promised him that he, that he would be a blessing upon all nations. He believed that promise. That was when he was 75 years old. That's an important number to remember if you like Bible chronology. Because we have a term of 430 years in Galatians chapter 3. We're not going to get to that today. But we have a term of 430 years that you want to remember what that means and how it differs from the 400 years that's used in the book of Genesis. The 30 years difference are from Abraham at 75 and Abraham at 105 at the weaning of Isaac. But that's a sideline that you can take care of on your own. Brethren, there were promises made to Abraham. Promises of a seed... Promises of nations being blessed. Promises of destroying his enemies and possessing their gates. Promises of a seed as multitudinous as the stars of heaven. And promise of a land. All those promises are ours. We are accused at times of spiritualizing the Bible. Thank God for spiritualizing the Bible. It's a spiritual book written by the Holy Spirit for spiritual men who are looking for spiritual blessings. We are not looking for the reformation or the increase of the nation of Israel on a piece of profitless sand 
at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. We're looking for heaven. We're looking for a city that hath foundations. We're looking for a heavenly country. We're strangers and pilgrims here and all that this world has to offer. We look for a continuing city, as Hebrews 13 tells us. Those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Every one of them. So much government policy is set in our country by misunderstanding some of these promises to Abraham. You had read to you from Genesis chapter 12 that in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Do you know how that's used for government policy setting in the United States? That if we send enough F-15s to Israel, then we'll be a blessed nation. That isn't the right Israel, and it's not the right blessing. The right Israel is the Lord Jesus Christ and the people of God, and the right blessing is the spiritual blessing of free justification by grace. That's spiritualizing the Bible because the Bible tells us to do so. Abraham never worried about the land that he was wandering through. Even when he looked north and south, east and west, he knew that that was just a little temporal, meaningless fulfillment in comparison to the heavenly country that he looked for. We have that explained to us so well by Paul in Hebrews chapter 11. Those of you Bible quizzers that in two months get to memorize Hebrews 11, I hope you're excited by the reading that we just had from those verses 8 through 19 about the fulfillment of these promises in Abraham. Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham, and if we are Christ, then we're Abraham's seed according to the promise. Amen. Galatians chapter 3 is going to teach us that. All nations being blessed are Gentiles being justified by the free grace of God and believing the gospel message about that justification. Our enemies being overwhelmed are the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ, including the devil and his angels, because that palace of the devil has been entered into by the Lord Jesus Christ when he rescued us. The many as the stars of the of the sky and the heavens for multitude is the multitude that no man can number that's described in heaven. The land is heaven itself. And as our brother just prayed, the preview of it that we get in the church of Jesus Christ. These promises are described in Galatians. I would never think of Galatians chapter 3 as a message about death and heaven. But it is definitely a message about death and heaven Because in Galatians chapter 3, all the things that Abraham looked for and the eternal inheritance that we want and need are described here and how we get them. And we do not get them by the works of the law. We get them by the work of Jesus Christ for us through a system of religion that is based on God's grace through Christ's work that we lay a hold of by faith. And that is what's being compared to the works of the law. Galatians chapter 3 is not the Apostle Paul dealing with the theological knot of whether faith is the conditional means of justification or whether it's the instrumental means of justification because Paul had never worried about such a thing. He's comparing a system of religion, the religion of Jesus Christ, the full gospel 
that God justifies the ungodly by grace. And the evidence of that is the faith that they have in the God that promised to do that. Versus trying to keep the works of Moses by being circumcised and following his dietary laws. And that is what you need to keep in mind as we go down through this chapter and see the word faith. The word faith is hardly used in Galatians chapter 3 as simply your believing. The word faith is used as a religious system of Jesus Christ. The full gospel of Jesus Christ. His finished work in fulfilling God's gracious plan in our lives. Versus the works of the law. Let me make another point before we get started. Eternal life is not the issue of Galatians 3. This is where we are so different from so many. Paul was not worried about a single person reading his epistle that if they didn't believe it, were going to end up going to hell. He did not believe that he was the instrument for the regeneration or the justification in any legal sense of anyone. He tells us in chapter 1 that everyone that he was writing to, that God had already given himself through Jesus Christ for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. He wasn't worried about their salvation. He says in Galatians chapter 4, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. This is crucial to understanding the Word of God. In Galatians 3, no one's eternal destiny is at stake. Their conversion is at stake. Their happiness is at stake. Their hope is at stake. Their gospel is at stake. Their assurance is at stake. But not their eternal life. What an important point to understand. Paul is not worried that if he does not get these people converted back to his gospel of grace through Jesus Christ, that they're going to go to hell. You know, as soon as you, as soon as, soon as you start thinking that way, you'll misunderstand chapter three and you'll misunderstand chapter five where it says you're fallen from grace. Right. Fallen from what aspect of grace? Have we, can we fall from the legal aspect of grace? Can we fall from the eternal phase of grace? Can we fall from the vital aspect of grace? Can I get unborn again? No. I can fall from the right understanding of grace. I can fall from the right doctrine of grace. And that's what Paul's dealing with as we go through Galatians chapter 3. This is one of the best chapters in the Bible for Gentiles. You have the wrong parents, every single one of you. Well, unless there's a surprise. You have the wrong parents. After Noah got off the ark, and after the Tower of Babel, as I told you just a few nights ago, There was a man named Eber, who was a great-grandfather of Abraham, the father of the Hebrews, and Abraham was a Hebrew. And you do not come out of that man. The Jews for 1,500 years believed that it was their relationship to Abraham 
in varying degrees that were their covenant relationship with God. And in the New Testament of our Lord Jesus Christ, these poor Galatians, living in the nation of Turkey, as we would call it today, had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed it. They had turned from their idols to serve the living and true God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and to wait for Him from heaven. False teachers out of Jerusalem had gone across the Mediterranean Sea into Turkey, our Turkey, into these churches of Galatia, and had taught them, we agree about Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah and He had to come and die. But unless you are circumcised, and unless you follow the dietary laws of Moses' law, you cannot be saved. And Paul is afraid that his work is about to be overthrown. He rebuked them severely in verses 6-9 through of the first chapter. When he told them, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. And then he said, if any man, even an angel from heaven, preaches a gospel different than what I've preached to you, let him be accursed. He rebuked them sharply right off the bat as he opens this epistle. Then from verses 10 of chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 2, he gives a timeline of his own life defending his apostleship because these false teachers, to make room for their false gospel, despised the apostle Paul and denigrated him to these churches that he didn't really have an apostleship on the par with the heads in Jerusalem. So Paul had to defend himself to the Galatians. He had to defend himself to the Corinthians and to others. And he did a pretty good job of it. And that's what we ended up with at the end of chapter 2, last Lord's Day. If you read the book of Galatians, and I'm trying to teach you the book of Galatians, you will find that he has a timeline, and he's giving you dates and events and persons involved to prove that his gospel was given to him by Jesus Christ and approved by the apostles in Jerusalem. We come to chapter 3. He takes up again, rebuking the Galatians for having listened to these false teachers. And brethren, Abraham is our father. The promises are our promises. We are the true Israel of God. It amazes me the people that get distracted with the biological, physical descendants of Abraham. They aren't the ones God's looking at. God is looking at the spiritual elect, regenerate seed of Abraham. And that's us. If you're Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There is no such thing as a distinction of Jew and Gentile. That's all in this chapter. We're only going to make it halfway. Don't get scared yet. There's going to be plenty of time for fear later that we're not going to get as far as we want to, but we're only going to go halfway. Oh, foolish Galatians! Who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Oh, foolish Galatians, let me briefly say there's a proper place to call a man a fool. In Matthew chapter 5, it says if you call a man a fool, you're in danger of the judgment or hell fire. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. But Jesus called His own disciples fools. And Paul called these Galatians the old foolish Galatians. He's not doing it to disparage their character. He's doing it to rebuke them and to get them back in the path of righteousness. He is not executing revenge upon them because He's 
angry at them in his heart. He is trying to save them. And so it's a noble and useful use of such a word. But you know, this type of language isn't what we call seeker-sensitive language. This is not a good pulpit manner to call your audience foolish. That doesn't go over very well today, but it's what Paul preached like. And this is what we look at. These are Paul's words. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Now, he uses the word bewitching as if they were put under the spell of some magic or spirit or devil. Because false teachers don't come with truth. False teachers do not appeal to your understanding. False teachers in the Bible are called seducers. Beguilers. They come and beguile you out of your reward. They trick you out of it. Instead of giving you the whole Word of God and that plainly presented... And so he is rebuking these Galatian saints for having listened to these teachers that did not give the pure gospel from the Word of God like he had given it to them. They had bewitched, the teachers had bewitched the Galatians. They had seduced them. They had beguiled them. They had taken them by craft instead of by truth. They had perverted the gospel of Christ and sold it to them as a wonderful combination, Jesus Christ and a little bit of Moses' law in order to be saved. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth. Paul had given all the evidence for Jesus Christ. That's what the word evidently means. Evidently set forth. Set forth with evidence. When the Apostle Paul preached... He brought the Word of God to bear. He showed how the Scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He had set Jesus Christ forth and Him crucified. That was Paul's Gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that is the Gospel we want to stick to. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. We want to lift up Jesus Christ. He is the end all of our salvation. Once we get off that track, then it is very easy to be seduced into a false gospel and lose our confidence in salvation by the pure grace of God and the finished work of Christ. We do not preach a social gospel. We do not preach things to make you feel comfortable. We try to set Jesus Christ forth with evidence, and that evidence is in the Word of God. And that's what we better stick to. And that's what Paul stuck with. And he knew that those... Believers in Galatia that had been baptized had seen that clearly. He had proved it to them. But they had been bewitched from obeying that gospel. They had failed to follow through and to continue in the word that had been given to them. You know, in John chapter 8, in John chapter 8 it says, Then many of the Jews believed on him. Did Jesus say, my Father in heaven is so excited about how many have made a decision for Jesus today? In John 8, 32, he said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. There's a big difference between a disciple who's only a professor and a disciple indeed.
who continues in the word of Jesus Christ. That's what's right here. These Galatians had been bewitched from continuing. If you're familiar with John chapter 8, you should know what happened next. It says that many of those Jews believed on Him and He spoke to them and said, If ye continue in My word, then are ye My disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they blew up. They said, We've never been in bondage to any man. There they were, serving Rome and paying taxes right and left. But they were never in bondage to any man. There they were, afraid to leave the synagogues because the Pharisees would would rebuke and criticize them, but they weren't in bondage to any man. And you know what? Over the next ten verses, Jesus found out that they were all the children of the devil. They said, Abraham's our father, and we've never been in bondage to any man. He said, you don't act anything like Abraham. By the time he got done, he said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and so are you. And they ended up killing the Lord of glory. The Bible tells us that the evidence of eternal life, the evidence of eternal life is not a momentary decision made during some invitation at some so-called altar in a New Testament church. It is by continuing in the Word of God and living a faithful life to Jesus Christ. That's the evidence of eternal life. These Galatians had been moved away from that. Paul was pressing them back to it. And how did he do it? He rebuked them for having left the gospel that had been set forth with evidence to them showing Jesus Christ crucified. And in that crucifixion, all their sins had been put away and they had eternal life through the gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what verse 1 is teaching as Paul goes back to rebuking the church. Now he begins a set of arguments. And there are five arguments in five verses And they show the rhetorical genius of the Holy Spirit of God and of our brother Paul. These are rhetorical questions, and they're powerful. And they look at a different, each one looks at a different angle of the foolishness of these Galatians. Verse 2. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? This is argument number one. This only would I learn of you. Does that mean that's the only question he's going to ask? Now, there's 12 more in a row here. Before you can get out of this short epistle, you've got 12 more questions. But you know, we say this all the time. I just want to know one thing. And then we go on and ask about 10 more questions after we get that one thing out of our poor child that's done something wrong and we want to figure out all the circumstances and details around it. I just want you to understand that the Bible is written in a way that we can grasp every word of it. Amen. This only would I learn of you. And he's going to ask a whole lot more questions and we do the same thing. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? First of all, let me jump to the hearing of faith. The hearing of faith. You can't hear faith. Whenever we look at the Word of God, we better look at every word and understand that word in its sense, not its sound. Faith is believing that God is and that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. The substance of things hoped for. That's what faith is. Can you hear faith? What does it sound like? Can you hear faith? What's the hearing of faith? Here faith is used for the religious system of Jesus Christ. 
the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hearing of God's grace in justifying the ungodly through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what faith is used for here. This is a metonym where the means of hearing the gospel is used for the gospel itself. Metonyms are, th- are things we use all the time. When we say that the, the, um, the Kremlin did this or said that, well, the Kremlin has never spoken a word in its life. The Kremlin is a building in Moscow. But we refer to the political leaders that have their offices in the Kremlin by referring to the Kremlin. And here we're using the word faith not to talk about our belief by itself, but the system, the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is God justifies the ungodly through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and there is nothing else to do. Eternal life is a pure gift. That's what the word faith means. Through the hearing of faith. And Paul is asking these Galatians, when you receive the Spirit of God, that was the earnest of God's salvation of your souls, and you knew in your hearts that God was pleased with you and that He had accepted you and approved you, as you began to bear the fruit of that Spirit, as some of you spoke in tongues, because there was visible evidence of the Spirit of God in these days, when you saw that Spirit and felt that Spirit and knew that Spirit and that Spirit spoke with you, did you get that Spirit by the preaching of the Gospel and believing it? Or by the works of the law? The answer is rhetorical. By the hearing of faith. And what does that mean? It was when we heard about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dead, buried, and risen again for our salvation, and when we were baptized in His name, is when we received the Spirit. We never got anything like that from hearing about the works of the law. These guys that came out of Jerusalem and told us we needed to be circumcised and couldn't eat pepperoni pizza anymore, when they came, we didn't get any spirit from them. That's the answer, and that's verse 2. That is powerful. What did you get from these teachers that are teaching you about the works of the law compared to what you got when you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Nothing. Argument 1. Galatians 3, 2. This only what I learn of you. Oh, he's got a few more questions. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How did you get the Holy Spirit of God? Was it through gospel preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Or was it through these Judaizers that came out of Jerusalem? Verse 3. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Argument number 2. Are ye so foolish? Now the first argument should be, almost be enough. They got the Holy Spirit of God by hearing the gospel preached. Now he's just asking another little, another little angle. See, he did want to know a few more things in verse 2, didn't he? He did want to learn something more from them. He wanted to learn, did they really believe that having started out in a spiritual existence, that they were going to improve on that by something done in the flesh? What was the spiritual thing they began with? They heard a simple message preached about a crucified man in Jerusalem named Jesus of Nazareth. There was no entertainment. There was no flowery speech. I love the Apostle Paul. You know, whenever I realize that I have a hair lip and I'm not very eloquent, 
All I have to do is say to myself, I didn't even have to determine what Paul determined. You know, Paul determined that he wouldn't use eloquence because he had it. I didn't have to do that. I just ended up where Paul was by choice. I ended up there by God's choice. Paul dumbed his presentation down to where the only reason you would ever believe it is because the Spirit of God was in your heart and that Spirit of God was telling you that's the truth of the Gospel. You know, today they want to modify the message in every way they can to attract a larger audience. Paul did everything in his power to dumb the message down to send that audience away. He says that in 1 Corinthians 2, so that, so that your faith would stand in the power of God and not in the wisdom of men. An eloquent man, a charismatic man, can easily get other men to follow him. Easily. Watch Joel Osteen tonight. He's as smooth as butter. And look, at he's got 30,000 sitting down there in the old Houston Rocket Stadium. Because he's smooth. And they love those smooth men. We don't want to be smooth. We want to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to preach Him for a number of minutes. And we want to preach Him in a plain way. And if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to be boring and you can go your merry way. Then we'll both be happy. And I trust by the grace of God that every one of you here this morning with the Spirit of God want to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. This second argument in verse 3, are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? You had a man come and preach to you about Jesus of Nazareth. You believed that message. The Spirit of God increased and quickened your soul, not regeneration, increased and quickened your soul into you grasping a hold of that. You love the spiritual message of the Bible that I gave you. Instead of thinking of a nationalistic future for Israel or anything like that, you heard about heaven and spiritual blessings in Christ. It was all spiritual. And you think you're going to improve that now by going down to the doctor's office and having some outpatient surgery and not eating pepperoni pizza anymore? Are you going to do some things in the flesh to improve your spirit? What's the, what's the answer to the rhetorical question? Having begun the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? No way. Not a chance can you improve upon what is accomplished through the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ by keeping little laws from Moses' books, from Moses' law. The third argument in verse 4. Have ye suffered so many things in vain? If it be yet in vain, here's his third argument. He said, this only would I learn of you in verse 2, but he wanted to learn something else in 3. Now he wants to learn something else in 4. And what he wants to know here is, what in the world did you Galatians all suffer for when you were baptized and converted when I was there in Galatia preaching the Gospel? This is the rhetorical genius of the Holy Spirit. Look Look at the arguments he's laying down. Now he says, Paul says, wait a minute, when I was in Galatia, and you pagans, you pagans left your families, you left your pagan temples, you turned from idols to serve the living and true God, you suffered persecution. There must have been something so significant in my simple preaching of Jesus Christ that it changed your lives, and you counted a cost of discipleship to follow Jesus Christ, and you paid that price of discipleship, and now... You are making modifications to avoid that persecution? 
What in the world has gone on? Have ye suffered so many things in vain? Was all that suffering when the Jews saw you following the monotheistic religion of Christianity and the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Jews saw that and they began persecuting you, you took it. You took it cheerfully. And now you're going back and modifying your behavior to be at peace with them. All that pain you suffered was in vain. What's happened? I'm I'm trying to help you follow the argument. Something's changed. You counted the cost up once and said it's worth paying. Now you're saying it's not worth paying. That it was in vain. He says, if it be yet in vain, unless I can convert you with Galatians chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6. That's what he means with those last words on verse 4. Let's go to the next argument. He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? There's the hearing of faith again. Faith doesn't hear anything. In the strict definition of words, if we're going to go by primary definitions and what the word faith is, faith doesn't hear. The hearing of faith is the preaching of the system of religion called Christianity by the Bible's terms that God justifies the ungodly through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing to be added to that work. That's the hearing of faith. And so this question in verse 5, this fourth rhetorical question is, the ministers that have been among you, the ministers that are there, when I was among you, blessed by God to perform miracles... Was my miracle working power, were the signs and wonders I did in Galatia, were they in conjunction with hearing about circumcision and what you could and could not eat from the book of Leviticus? Or were they in conjunction with the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, Him dead, buried, resurrected, glorified at the right hand of God and pouring out this power that I'm showing you? The answer to that rhetorical question It is all connected to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know the Holy Spirit knows the weak points of their false gospel, and so He's tearing them apart with these rhetorical questions. The miracle-working power. And oh, He got them here because the Jews require a sign. And who performed the signs and the wonders? The preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostles and those that came from them that had the gift of performing miracles. We come to verse 6. The fifth argument. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He gets positive. Our brother Paul gets positive. Kind of negative in verse 1, wouldn't you say? Foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Kind of negative in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5 as he asks rhetorical questions that make them look Pretty weak and pitiful. Pretty foolish. Now he comes to verse 6. And he says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I'm comparing two systems of religion. I'm comparing doing the works of Moses from the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's one system. Do the things contained in those five books and live. I'm comparing that to God justifies the ungodly through the finished work of Jesus Christ and men simply lay hold of that by faith in that finished work and that promised eternal life that God gave. I'm comparing those two things 
And now that I think about it, that's the same thing that Abraham did. He believed the promise of God by faith. That's what verse 6 is saying. It's the fifth argument. It's a positive one. Even as. Even as means in exactly and precisely the way that I'm describing. Even as Abraham believed God. The hearing of faith is based on the same type of relationship that Abraham had with God as we're to have with God. God promised things. God performed things. Abraham believed the promises and trusted the performance. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Romans chapter 4. There was no offer given to Abraham. There were promises given to Abraham. You can't read of offers in Genesis 12 through 24. You read of promises. God picked that man out and gave him abundant promises. And he believed those promises. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God promised things to Abraham. Abraham heard the promises and believed that God was true and would do those things. And that was counted to him for righteousness. That was the evidence of his righteousness. This is where we differ with the religious world. The Arminian says, your decision of faith is the condition for justification in order to be legally righteous before God. The Calvinist says, your faith is God's instrumental choice for you to become legally justified in the sight of God. We deny them both. We teach and we believe that faith is the evidence of justification and of a righteous man. It is not the condition, nor is it the instrument. They can use those words all they want, but what they end up with is a conditional scheme of justification, and we deny it. And we are in a small minority, but we are not alone, and we have not been alone through history. While I hardly ever appeal to Presbyterians, I will tell you that there are Baptists and Presbyterians that have lived in the past often called high Calvinists, that held our doctrine of justification and maybe even more severe than we hold it. They believed in eternal justification. John Gill, Twiss, Crisp, others. There's a, there's a list of them. They were called high Calvinists. And they believed that justification was settled before God ever created Adam. Praise the Lord that they're not all decisional regenerationists like we face today. But they don't mean anything to me, really. What I love is this verse. Because this verse... Do you know what? This is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the, in the New Testament. This thing is quoted over and over. This must be important. You think? This is the most quoted phrase from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Oh, you think you can get through Romans 3 and 4 with just finding it once? How about twice? You think you can find it in James? You think you can find it throughout... This is the number one statement. This is the number one statement about justification picked by God. So I think we ought to pick on it a little bit. And pick at it a little bit and enjoy every bit of meat that we can find on this piece that God's given to us. And if you don't like that little stupid analogy, how about every facet of the jewel of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6? Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Let's first of all... Let me tell you why it's quoted so many times. 
and why this happened to Abraham. Abraham was an important figure in the Bible. The whole Israelite nation traced themselves back to Abraham. If you can show a Jew how Abraham was saved or how Abraham proved that he was a just man, that's the weightiest argument you can give a Jew. Right. It gets better than that. Oh, brethren, this is the Holy Spirit. You don't need a book on logic. You need right. Galatians Amen. and the other epistles. This is sweet. Why is he using Abraham? I think Abel had good faith. When I get into Hebrews chapter 11 and I get to verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel. Abel was facing that older brother of his. That was a pretty tough decision he had to make, that he was going to bring an offering that was different than his older brother's, and he died for it. What's wrong with his faith? Wouldn't have meant that much to a Jew. You pick on it. You, You show how Abraham dealt with God and how Abraham was the friend of God and how Abraham inherited the promises. You find out what Abraham did. You have got... A Judaizer by the throat. That's right. Second, when Abraham was given these promises and he believed, Genesis chapter 15, was he circumcised or not circumcised? Not circumcised. Third, when Abraham was given these promises and he believed that he was said to be a just man, had he ever heard of Moses? Nope. Never heard of Moses. How much longer would it take before Moses got down from Mount Sinai? 430 years. Praise the God of heaven. That is why Abraham is such a single figure in the Bible. Why does it refer to David's faith? It lists it in Hebrews 11, but nowhere else do you read about it. Hardly. David's faith was of of, of insignificance compared to Abraham. That is why Abraham is such a focus of, of attention in the New Testament because he's so important to Jews and to Judaizers who were claiming we have to be related to Abraham. So Paul just says, okay, if that's your argument, let's look at Abraham. Even as our relationship to God is exactly the same as Abraham's relationship to God. Even as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Let's go look at it. Hold your hand there, Galatians 3. We are not going to get very far today. And I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm not very sorry. Look at Genesis chapter 15. I don't care if we don't get past this Galatians 3, 6 at the moment. I am so tired. And those of you that have read about justification, you're tired with me, aren't you? Of reading about faith being the condition of justification. Faith being the instrument of justification. Faith is the evidence of justification. Here it is. We had it read to us this morning. Thank you, Brother Mark, for reading it to us. Verse 5, God brought him forth abroad. Genesis 15:5. the Lord brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Amen. Abraham, count those stars for me. That's what the word tell means. He wasn't supposed to tell the stars to do something. The word tell means to count them. That's why David came back to King Saul with his dowry and, and told it in full tale. It means he counted them all out one by one, all 200 of those precious little jewels, to get that daughter of Saul. You all know what I'm referring to. Tell the stars. Count the stars if you're able. 
to number them. See, he, he, I love how the Bible can define words for us. What does the word tell mean? Number. What does it mean to number something? To count them. So shall thy seed be. I'm going to make you a family, a seed that's going to be like that. You can't count them and you're not going to be able to count all those coming from you. And it says he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Here's where we differ from the Arminians and the Calvinists. This verse right here, Genesis 15, is the one pulled out of the Old Testament and quoted Romans 4 twice, Galatians 3, James, and other places. This right here. Now, we've got to ask a few questions about this. The text says, if we just look at Genesis 15:6, he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. When you count something in place of something else, it means it's the evidence or the indication that you have that. He counted Abraham's faith as the evidence of a righteous man. It doesn't say God made him righteous because he believed. It says he counted it to him for righteousness. It was the evidence of Abraham's righteousness. Oh, brethren, this is so sweet. It is only by the grace of God that we are not Calvinists. And believing that the preaching of the gospel is the instrumental means of being justified by God and becoming righteousness. It's only by the grace of God that we're able to look at the Bible and look at that verse and understand something. Now follow with me. This is Genesis 15. And it says it was counted to him for righteousness. Do you want to believe that that was the instrumental act in Abraham's life that made him just before God and a righteous man? If you want to believe that, then what was he in chapter 14? What was he in chapter 14 when Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, came out and had bread and wine with him and blessed him? Was he blessing a condemned man? Was he blessing a cursed man? Or was he blessing a righteous man? What did he say about him? What did Melchizedek say about Abram? Verse 19, Blessed be Abraham, Abram, of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. That is, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. Oh, those of you that... My son Jonathan and I had some sweet... It was sweet to me, son. We had sweet time last night in Hebrews 7 because it's one of the next chapters to memorize. You quizzers, you should be fighting to get Hebrews 7. But if you get Hebrews 7, you're going to miss Hebrews 9. You see, you ought to be fighting for Hebrews 9 too. Hebrews 7 was so good. We memorized a few verses together last night. We were alone for a while. And I said, son, all 28 verses are the priesthood of Jesus Christ as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. They're wonderful verses. That religion that resides in St. Louis, that thinks that man, that effeminate man, that stands up there in his pajamas and holds God up as a cracker, that that is necessary to save a man and stand between God and men, There is one man that stands between God and men. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only mediator. He is the only priest. He is the only high priest. Any religion in the New Testament that says they have a priest is manifestly false on that grounds alone. There is no priest mentioned as any office in the New Testament except one, and he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The order of... 
My son was wanting to know about the order of Melchizedek. Well, it's a little bit better than the order of Aaron out of the tribe of Levi. Just a little. About 20 reasons in Hebrews chapter 7. It's precious, precious truth. But we're dealing with this precious truth right now. I'm asking you a question. What was Abraham in Genesis 14? Was he justified before God or not? If you say he wasn't, I want you to tell me about his relationship with God. Why did God hear his prayers? Why did God bless his efforts? The Bible says that the Lord, his face is against them, against the wicked, and he doesn't hear their prayers. I see Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, blessing that man because he was already a just and a righteous man before he even got to Genesis 15. If we back up a little bit further and we come back into chapter 12, all the way back to chapter 12, would you answer me a question? Why did Abraham move from Ur of the Chaldeans to Canaan? By faith. But that's not what's quoted in the New Testament. Genesis 15, 6 is what's quoted in the New Testament. When you take one man who has no children and he knows he's biologic, it's too late. Are you with me for a moment? This is a great act of faith. The Bible says it's a great act of faith. It's in Romans chapter 4. This is a huge act of faith. You take a man. Do you know how desperate he is? He says, all I've got is this Eliezer of Damascus that I bought. He's one of my slaves, and he's going to become my heir unless you give me a seed. And God said, look at that sky. That's how many you're going to have. And he believed in the Lord. The Bible, Romans chapter 4, verses... 17 through 21 are my favorite verses about faith. He staggered not at the promise of God. He considered not his own body. Now dead, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He threw all caution. He threw all human reasoning out the window. I trust God and his ability. God's going to do this. And God said, you're a righteous man for trusting me like that. How did he come out of Ur of the Chaldeans? By faith. What did, he, what did he get when he came out in verse 3? He was already getting the promises of God. What did he do in verse 7? Of, we're, we're in Genesis 12, 7. What did he do in Genesis 12, 7? He built an altar unto the Lord who appeared to him. What did he do in verse 8? He built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Do you want to tell me he wasn't a justified man? He was a justified man already by the grace of God. Faith is an evidence of justification. And I'm going to tell you something. That is the only way that God's grace is left pure and unfrustrated. And it's the only way that God can get His grace to all the seed. Do I have a verse? Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. That's the only way to get it done to everyone. We only have the consistent plan of salvation that can save an aborted child. They are as condemned as any other person of Adam's race. Everyone else has to create either two ways of salvation or an age of accountability, which is not in the Word of God. 
Would somebody raise their hand who did a good job this past week or two with the age of accountability? Oh, you're too modest. I'm sorry that my memory is failing me. We have someone in this church that did a great job on the age of accountability with someone outside of our church. <laughs> yes. Marianne Nappy, I just can't believe that you're going to say that abortion clinics have put more people into heaven than the preaching of the gospel or anything else. If you believe in the age of accountability, if you truly loved your children, what would you do to them before they reached that age? You would, you would smother them in their sleep to make sure they went to heaven. Are you glad that we don't believe in the age of accountability? If See, they don't believe that. They don't believe that. They make that up to make the, the little old ladies happy who never think beyond the words that their little Johnny who died at the age of one from smallpox is going to be in heaven. That's what they crave. And listen, what I want you to crave is the glory of God and to trust Him whether it's little Johnny or old grandpa. Right. We are all in the hands of the living God Amen. who is most merciful and benevolent through the gift of Jesus Christ our Lord and salvation by Him. All of this is going back to Abraham. When was Abraham justified? He was a justified man before he ever came out of Ur of the Chaldeans because he came out with faith, which is a gift of the Holy Ghost. Genesis chapter 15 is just an event in his life that God used and wrote down in the Word of God so that when we got to the New Testament, those people that were putting their trust in Abraham would have the greatest example the greatest example in their lives, the man they esteem the most, the father of the faithful, the friend of God, the father of the nation, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that that man did not know about circumcision yet, did not know about Moses yet, and showed he was a just man by simply believing the promises of God. And that's exactly what we do today, and that's why Galatians 3, 6 says, even as... Even as we are exactly, we are treated exactly the way that Abraham was. Right. Even if we're Gentiles, brethren, even as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. If this event was his conditional or instrumental justification, then he was a condemned pagan in his previous acts of worship, wasn't he? But God joyfully accepted them. Before he could believe in Genesis 15:6, God has already said in verse 1, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. He didn't say, Abram, I want to be your shield. I want to be your shield and I want to be your exceeding great reward. He said, I am, because he was already a justified man. He was already a child of God. He was already one of God's elect. He was already clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ in advance by the faith of God. Turn to Psalm 106. Do you believe that every word of God is pure? Amen. Every word? The most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament about justification is Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. If, if that verse means 
that Abraham's belief is what activated, brought into force, energized, confirmed his righteousness before God, then Phinehas became a just man and righteous before God by Moabite, Israelite, shish kebab. And that's by the blessed God who gave us a King James Bible that uses the very same language in Psalm 106. Look at Psalm 106, verse 30. Then stood up Phinehas, Psalm 106:30. Then stood up Phinehas and executed judgment. And so the plague was stayed. And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. I love the Word of God. Look at that verse. That is where we will hang our doctrine. Because God the Holy Spirit chose to give us the very same language in Psalm 106 as is used in Genesis 15 and quoted five times in the New Testament. It was counted to him for righteousness. Is that what made Phinehas a righteous man before God? Is that how we get to heaven? Is that how we become just? Is that justification? Taking a javelin, running into a tent, and impaling two people in an act of whoredom. You can read about it in Numbers 25. There's a whole chapter because it was a great event. But I want to tell you about the Bible. This is how much I trust it. Those words aren't there by accident. That identical terminology in Psalm 106 is there to help us as we fight against an enemy of men who want to take salvation out of God's hands and put it into men's hands. Calvinists are sacramentalists. If their preachers do not carry their gospel to everyone on earth, they cannot be justified. That preaching that comes about Jesus Christ is a blessing for our conversion, our assurance, our hope, our knowledge of what God has done for us. But it does not justify us before God. It justifies us in our own conscience, in our own mind, in our own heart. It's called subjective justification, if you want a theological term for it. All I know is it's it's us laying hold of justification for our own assurance. It's us making our calling and election sure by starting with faith and then adding to that faith virtue, knowledge, and so forth because you know the Bible's going to tell us in another place that you can't be justified by faith alone because faith without works is dead. And so if you make faith the instrument, you better make the works that follow it the instrument as well. And neither of them are instruments. Both are evidences. This is what we believe. And you know why we believe it? Because God's given us His Word and opened our eyes to see it. And I bless and praise His holy name. Why was this event singled out above all others? Listen, since we have the words, counted it to Him for righteousness, why doesn't Romans 4 and Galatians 3 and James 2 have Psalm 106? Remember my three reasons. It's not mine, they're the Lord's. There's three reasons. Phinehas wasn't the father of Israel and nobody put their trust in their relationship to Phinehas. Phinehas was circumcised and Phinehas was keeping the law of Moses. Do you know why Abraham's pulled forward? Because Abraham was the father of the whole nation. They all looked to him for confidence of their eternal life and their relationship with God by covenant. And yet, there he was before he was circumcised and before he knew about the law of Moses believing God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Even as, even as, brethren, even as. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. 
that is not a statement that if you'll believe on Jesus Christ, you can be born again right now from your state of death and trespasses and sins. That is a statement that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right now, you shall be saved and end up in heaven. Because it's the evidence that you're born again. It's the evidence that you're justified. It's the evidence that you're elect. How do you make your calling and election sure? You take the faith that God gives you and add to it virtue. And add to that virtue knowledge and so forth. And if you do these things, you shall never fall. The reason that Abraham is pulled forward is because Abraham was the father of the Jews. He was the father of the faithful. He was the friend of God. He was the greatest hero. He was the, he was the highest image in the eyes of a Jew. And he had never been circumcised, nor did he know about the law of Moses when God said he was a righteous man. And so Paul could preach to these men that were thinking about going back under the law of Moses, going back to get circumcised, that they wanted to be like Abraham. He points out, Abraham didn't do any of that stuff. That's his argument in Romans 4. It's his argument in Galatians 3. We didn't get very far, but I hope we got far enough that you thank the God of heaven for reaching down into Ur of the Americas and saving you by His grace. And you believe on Him for the evidence of that salvation, and you lay hold of eternal life by believing on Him. We, we, and we, we lay up in, forgive me, we lay up in store a good foundation against the time to come by believing and virtue and knowledge and, from 1 Timothy 6, being willing to communicate and to distribute of our financial resources. 1 Timothy 6 says you lay hold of eternal life and lay up in store a good foundation against the time to come by giving money to poor saints. You know what? It all works together. Every single one of those is an evidence of eternal life. Not a condition and not an instrument. May Jesus Christ be praised. He's done it all for us. He is our great high priest and he has saved us with an everlasting salvation. We are neither Arminians nor Calvinists. Praise the God of heaven.